So we happen to be in a study in Philippians coming to one of the verses that would be the centerpiece of the book and probably a life verse for many of you, uh, a very familiar verse, and it reads this way. It's 121 of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So we're going to read this section together. Let's just read it as you're seated. Paul writes, uh, Philippians 1.19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live, 22, on in the flesh, this will, re- this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Father, we are so grateful for this uh, passage. It's uh, one of the most amazing, powerful passages about the reality of life and death and, and also the reality that the Christian can say to die is actually a gain. The world would say that's the most tragic thing that could ever happen. But for Paul, it was actually a gain. And yet he knew, Lord, and I think this is in keeping with the whole theme of the book, that for him to remain on in the flesh was necessary for more fruit to the glory of God. For the Philippian church and many other churches that Paul had planted and ministered to. And thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that our days are written in your book before one of them came to pass. And you have a plan. And that plan is to use us to bless other people. To not merely live for ourselves and look for our own personal interests, but for the interest of others, to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who left the glories of heaven to take on the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of man, laying down his life to die on that terrible cross. Lord, we're so grateful that Paul really lived that out, and we can too. We can have this great hope. And a person who can live for Christ and even have this view of death, well, there's no reason that they won't have full joy and they don't have to really be worried about much. So help us, Lord, with all of that. Teach us what you want us to know and to go deep into our hearts tonight. May you be glorified in our response to your word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. To me, to live is Christ. And Paul, as he begins... He says, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. Now, remember, uh, Paul is in Roman prison right now. He's in a form of house arrest. So deliverance had to be something that was certainly on his mind. The word deliverance is translated as salvation in the King James Version. It is actually the word soterion in Greek. It's where we get the idea of the study of salvation, which is called soteriology, 
Whenever you see an ology on a word, just remember that just means the study of something. So theology is the study of God. God is theos in the Greek. Ology onto the word just simply means the study of God. So in this case, soterion is the word that is translated in most modern translations as my deliverance. I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your intercessory prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had been telling the Philippians and they had been wondering about what was going on with him. And it had been about four years since they had seen each other. And Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian church and probably word had gotten out that Paul was in prison. And so Paul makes this uh, incredible treatment that we studied last week where he says, hey, my imprisonment, my chains have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel has spread as a result of my chains. It's gone into Caesar's household. And we shared last week that sometimes the things that we go through could simply be for gospel advance, to get the gospel to someone who may be close to you as you go through something personally and all of that. And so Paul talk, talked about the furtherance of the gospel. And another aspect, he said that my chains have emboldened other believers to be more confident about them sharing the gospel. So two things that happened. Paul says the gospel has been furthered into Caesar's household by my chains, my imprisonment. And secondly, believers have become more bold. They're, they're saying something like this. If Paul can do it while he's in chains, then I can do it while I'm walking around free. Amen? And so those were the two arguments that Paul had made, that God had turned things around for good because that's what he does. But certainly the human side of Paul or any of us would be, yeah, but what about me getting out of here? <laughs> it's wonderful to talk about gospel advance and God taking something I'm going through to further you know, more people hearing about the gospel. It's wonderful if even the way I handled the situation has emboldened others to be more bold about their sharing the gospel. But still, I'm walking around in chains. <laughs> still, I have Roman guards that are guarding me. Still, I am not free to go to different places and share the gospel. And on a human level, we would all, you know, the Philippian church would be asking the question, and I'm sure Paul might be asking the question in his heart too. So when am I going to get out of here? But it might be something even more like, am I going to get out of here? And what we can read between the lines here is that Paul doesn't seem to know for sure. He kind of lets us into his heart a little bit to, to hear some of the inner dialogue that's going on in his soul. And he's confident that he's going to get out, but he's not God. God is ultimately sovereign. And he's going to say something in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He says these words, even if, look at 2.17, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I think Paul is saying there, even if I were to die right now, if I were to be poured out, if my life were to be poured out as a drink offering to his glory and it furthered what Christ wanted to do, I would be okay with that. So Paul doesn't know. Remember, he's supposed to stand before Caesar and Caesar could say he should die and Caesar had all the power to do that. And if Caesar said, I'm just done with this guy, I don't want to hear any more about him, then Paul's life was over. And so 
Paul, certainly these questions begin to arise about what's going to happen. And Paul, with, you know, confident faith, he says, I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance through what? Notice two things in verse 19, through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's talking about his deliverance, and there are people who think that the word deliverance here could be his physical deliverance from prison. But just about every time the word soterion is used, it's used in a, in a more final sense of a final deliverance as you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And so that's usually how the word is used, although it can have a secondary idea of a temporal or like a physical release from a, a tough spot. And so Paul now says, I know it's going to turn out from my deliverance. Does he mean in an ultimate sense he's going to be vindicated before God? I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a second. But I want you to see two practical things. Prayers and provision from the Lord, namely the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which is another way to say the Holy Spirit here, they go together. That is that provision is released to God's people through the prayers of God's people. So that Paul would say, if more help is going to come to me from the Holy Spirit, God is going to use your prayers as a means to get help down to me. Now, I don't know why God has decided to do things that way. And certainly God can pour out any provision he wants without intercessory prayer from anybody. But God has decided to use us to share the gospel. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And God has decided in his sovereignty to use our prayers to help other people in situations. You guys, when you're driving on the freeway, do you guys sometimes see the sign, prayer changes things? And, and we might wonder about that. Does it? You know, when we pray, does, does prayer really change things? What I would just submit to you right here, we have an example of it. That when we pray for other people, provision does come from heaven. Now, God is ultimately responsible for all of that. But I will just say to you that God has decided to use our prayers as a means of releasing his power. So if you don't pray, either for yourself or for others, the implication may well be that you won't get the supply that you need. Amen? You see, if you don't go to the throne of grace to find help in time of need, will you get help in time of need? Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. But what if you won't call? Oftentimes God said to his people, you won't call to me. You call to the idols, but you won't call to me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We know all the verses, right? Well, here Paul is saying that as you pray for me, provision from heaven comes down. I don't understand all of the angles and nuances of that, but I'll just tell you, that's what the text says. I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Interestingly enough, Paul was pondering the book of Job because Paul quotes from Job 13 and specifically verse 16. Let's turn over there. Job is right before the Psalms. Let me just show it to you. Now, y'all know that the book of Job is all about a guy going through terrible suffering, right? God is sovereign over the suffering. We know that as we read the story. Job has uh, questions. Uh, he has doubts. He has complaints. He has it all. 
You read the book of Job. We all know the verse where Job makes the great declaration. Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's not the whole story, brethren. (laughs) He spends a lot of chapters complaining. And he has questions. And he says, I want to make my defense before the king, which would be God. And in one of those incredible sections, he says these words. This is 1315 of Job. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. Now that is the the quote all the way in Philippians that we just read. Paul is musing on the book of Job. We've all probably done it. If you've ever been through a tough, inexplicable, hard time, you probably finally decided to brave the book of Job. Amen? (laughs) Did you know that we taught through the book of Job, the entire book of Job, because that's how we do things. (laughs) And it was an amazing study. It's not the most exciting, uh, edifying, you know, encouraging stuff. It's some of the hardest stuff of life. But in a way, it's still encouraging. And here's what Job said. He said, basically, if you decide to kill me, verse 15, I'm still going to hope in you. But I'm still going to argue my ways. This also will be my salvation, or Job might say my ultimate vindication, because remember his friends were accusing him of sin, and he was saying, I didn't do anything wrong, and they were saying, you have to have done something wrong, because that's why you're going through all this stuff. For a godless man, Job 13, 16, may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech. Let my declaration fill your ears, and then notice, behold now, I've prepared my case. I know that I will be what? Vindicated. Back to Philippians. When, when Paul talks about, I know this is going to turn out for my soterion, my ultimate salvation, he's musing on the book of Job. In other words, what informs Paul's point of view is precedent from the Bible. And that is a beautiful thing. And that's often what God will do. We'll be going through something personally and a passage will come to mind or we'll be in a Bible study or maybe you'll be doing some devotional reading and all of a sudden something will leap off the page and God will basically say to you, now that is something I want you to apply to your situation. I want you to stand upon that promise. I want you to understand that I am going to give you ultimate vindication and even though you don't get it right now, I am your God And I will bring you safely home into my heavenly kingdom. You know, we think about the people of Ukraine right now, right? It's on everybody's mind. And we come to find out that the church has been very strong in that area. And there's many believers on the ground there. And, and, you know, uh, I was watching uh, the news the other night and a couple of the Fox News people were killed. I don't know if you guys heard this. Uh, Some of those on the, the ground reporters that are constantly making those reports and you wonder, man, they're in harm's way, right? In some of those cities that are being targeted, well, two of them were killed and another one was injured from Fox News. And, and you're like, you know, this is real life. And, and these things are, are not always easy to understand. Paul being in prison is not an easy thing to understand. Even though Paul says, the gospel's getting out to the guards and permeating into Caesar's household and other Christians are becoming more bold to share their faith. yeah. But you're still rattling chains. 
You still have to say to the guard, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, it's not convenient stuff. But here's what's going on. And Paul says, essentially, I know I'm going to be vindicated, whether by life or by death. And so this is the idea. The idea of their prayers and supply is interesting because the English word, the word for supply in Greek gives us the English word chorus, like it is in a musical chorus. So Paul believed that God would vindicate him through a supply of help through the spirit of Jesus Christ, probably called the spirit of Christ here because Christ sent the spirit and the, the spirit came as a result of Christ's work, you could say. So here's the idea. A chorus of help, here's the actual language now, is going to come from heaven as a result of the intercessory prayers of God's people. Moitier puts it this way, the two thoughts of intercession and supply are bound so closely together by Paul that we could translate the Greek, your prayers and the consequent supply that come from them. As Paul sat in Roman custody, here's another commentator, he was confident that as the Philippians prayed, fresh supplies of the spirit of Jesus Christ would be poured into his heart, empowering him for every trial and securing his ultimate deliverance. The word supply speaks of a sufficient supply. The Lord would hear the prayers of his people and bring provision to Paul through the Holy Spirit. Provision literally means to lead a chorus. Whenever a Greek city was going to put on a special festival, somebody had to pay for the singers and dancers. The donation called for had to be a lavish one. And so the word came to mean to provide generously or lavishly. This is from my notes. Sometimes life's chains can cause us to experience a chorus of support that comes from Christ in the midst of our crisis. Amen. Let me, let me kind of put this to the music side of things, since it's a musical word. So when sometimes this is what happens. Songs that you've sang a hundred times all of a sudden, a song goes out, and you're going through something. And that song takes on a depth of meaning that you've never known before. Amen? Amen. You ever been there before? I mean, I, there's been times when I've been in a, in a church service, and I've, I know most of the songs, because I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> and I know the old ones and the new ones and the in-betweeners. But there's been times when the Lord's taken a song and almost poured it into my heart in such a way that it ministered to me with such depth and beauty. I, I don't even have words. And there's been times that he's taken a passage that I've studied before and even taught before and poured it into my heart in a new and fresh way because it was what I needed for the moment that I was in. It became a new song in my heart. Amen? Amen. You know, David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And the Lord would give him songs from the Holy Spirit. And, and remember that David's, the deepest songs that we probably have all studied in the Psalter, the 150 psalms in the songbook, if you will, when did they come in David's most difficult moments? And so this is what Paul is tying together. As you pray, God sends a chorus down into my soul. 
And this is the way it spiritually works. And I think we can all get the idea. He puts a new song in my heart, a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Well, you look at the book of Acts and there's often times where it says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? They already had the Spirit. What was going on? A fresh infilling, a fresh outpouring, a fresh supply from heaven. Amen? Be ye kept being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. This is what we need. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. But the cool thing is we can pray for other people's, other people that we love to experience fresh supplies. Would you pray that for me, please? Because I need fresh supplies all the time. And I'll pray that for you. That the Lord would supply us what we need. According, look at verse 20, to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame. Now, thank you for praying for me, says Paul. Thank you for the supplies that are coming my way. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body. What does he say? Whether by life or by death. So as that supply comes down from heaven to me in the power of the Holy Spirit, I have an earnest expectation that I'm not going to be put to shame whether I die or I live. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, Romans 1.16. Paul says, I know I'm not going to be ashamed. I know in whom I have hoped, right? And I know he's able to complete what he started in me. That's Philippians 1.6. The idea of an earnest expectation is only used one other place, and it's in Romans 8.19, where it talks about how the creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It has this eager expectation that when the resurrection and rapture occur, that it will be made new. It's a longing. It's an eager expectation. And here, that's what Paul is saying. My earnest expectation is anchored in hope. Biblical hope is not, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I hope my team wins the game. Or I hope that those shoes that I were, was looking at are still on sale. <laughs> Whatever it is. It's not a hope so. Biblical hope, and this is the actual definition for the word, elpis is the Greek word, is simply faith looking forward. It's not, biblical hope is not if. Biblical hope is simply when. Always remember that. Whenever you see the word hope in the New Testament, it's not, I, I just hope this happens. You know, if I could just believe it hard enough. No, 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 no. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not if, it is just a matter of when. And that's what Paul is saying. I have this eager expectation. My head is outstretched. In fact, this word, some believe Paul coined the word. And here is the idea. It's a stretching forth. It's a turning away from anything that could detract you from watching, it's an intense gazing on, upon something in the distance from you, and it's captured 
in the idea of a runner in a race, which Paul will use in Philippians 3, verse, uh, I think, 14, that's stretching towards the tape to try to lean and win the race, and their focus is nowhere else. They've turned away from anything else that could distract, and they simply have their gaze on the finish line, and then they stretch out. That's, that's Paul's earnest expectation. He says, I, I'm just focused on what God's going to do. However he decides to do it, his focus is on Christ, and therefore he knows he will never be ashamed. He says, look at verse 20 again. It's my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be what? Exalted in my body. The, the word exalted there is mega luno. It means to declare great that he might increase and I may, might decrease. One writer puts it this way. The literal translation is more striking. That Christ will be enlarged in my body and shown in all the dimensions of his greatness. May he be enlarged in my life. As John the Baptist put it, may he increase and I decrease. Oh Lord, you might pray, be enlarged in my life. Let people see Christ in me, the hope of glory. Amen. That's what Paul is saying. My body, Ellicott, Ellicott put it this way, my body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. Whew. May my life Become a living theater for your glory, O oh Lord. That's Paul in prison saying, that is my desire. Now, if you can wake up on a Monday morning and say, oh Lord, let this body, I'm going to try to clean it up as best I can, be a theater for your glory. Do you think God's going to answer that prayer? Oh, yes, he is. And you're going to get a supply from heaven and you're going to start to overflow. You say, how does Paul say such things? How is this the mindset of an individual like this? I mean, he is a real human being, right? Flesh and blood like us, right? Yes. It's because he had this one singular vision for his life. Here's what it is. It's in verse 21. To me, to live is Christ. Now let's start there. If I were to say to you, fill in the blank, to me, to live is, whoop, fill it in, what would you say? Well, if you were to go out on the, let's say, say the streets of the Inland Empire, and you said, hey, answer this question, for you to live is, what do you think people would say? Shopping. <laughs> Shop till you drop. <laughs> All right? Someone might say golf. Ooh, I take that one very personally. I don't know. Someone might say baseball. Or someone might say television. I love this one show. And I set my whole week up so I could see this one show. Whoa. To me, to live is... Some people would say, oh yeah, silver and gold, baby. 
Do whatever you can to make the money, the money, the money, the money. Some people might say, power. I just got to get that job. I got to get that office. I got to get that corner office. Some people might say, I just got to get that car. When I get, for me to live is that car. You see them on Sunday morning, don't you? They're (laughs) waxing that car on a Sunday morning. Bowing before their God with a small G. I drove by a few of your houses. I saw you. No, never mind. Just kidding. For me to live is, what if I asked the person that knows you the best to fill that in for you? For him to live is, for her, I'm talking about the people who know you the best, watch you. I'm not talking about a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. See, see, for Paul, to live is Christ. That's why he can say to die is gain. Now, I'm not saying that this is easy stuff, but I'm giving you an insight into what made Paul tick. Now, get this. The thing, if you were to go out into the world and say, Give me words that describe death to you. Here's what you would get back. Terrible, disastrous, horrible. You know, you could could fill in the blank, right? For the world, death is the most horrendous, terrible thing that could ever occur. But for Paul, death is actually a gain in chapter three, he's going to talk about how what he counted as, you know, a gain was a loss. And he's changed the ledger of his life, if you will. And Paul, please don't misunderstand. He has no intentions about exiting early or taking things into his own personal hands. None of that. That's not what this is about. This is not about any kind of suicide talk or any death wish or Uh, putting himself in a situation where he would put himself at risk or test God, none of that is here. What Paul is simply saying is that whenever God calls me home, it will be a gain. And if he chooses to leave me here, that will be a gain as well. Amen? That was Paul's mindset. To me, to live is Christ. And that's why Paul can say to die is gain. Barclay says, For living is Christ to me. My whole life is about him. And it didn't used to be, but it was now. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Only gain when that day comes. And Paul was certainly not in comfortable surroundings, but he was trusting the Lord. And Paul has just given given us a great definition of what Christianity is. Christianity, please hear this. It's much more than a creed. It's much more than a building. It's much more than a group of people. It's much more than a set of morals. Christianity is Christ. It is not Christianity in the most, I guess you could say, the world's definition of religion is not Christianity. Because for the world, religion means a set of rules of do's and don'ts. That may be part of what we believe, but that's not 
the core of what we believe. Christianity is to know Christ. Amen? Amen. It is to have a relationship with the living Son of God. It is to know him and the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of his sufferings, which will be in the very, or in chapter three. Amen? It's, this is why we say it's relational. Paul says, no, for me to live is to know him. He is my life. Since Christ himself is Paul's life, his death would certainly be a gain for that time, he would be with Christ in, full, in a full and complete sense. Jesus said, I'm going away. They said, where are, you go- where are you going, Lord? How can we know the way? The, the disciples were broken and hurt by the Lord's departure. Where are you going? We, we want to be with you. We'll follow you wherever you go. What do you mean you're going away? And for any believer at any time, after the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, we, we love him, but we haven't seen him. Amen. We're still apt to be uh, absent from the body is to be what? At home with the Lord. So while we're in the body, we're not with the Lord. We're not. That's why Paul is saying it's a game. He's saying, because then I will be with him. Then I will see him face to face. Now, I hope, brethren, that you can see the power for the believer. Because who other than a Christian could say to die is a gain? And if this is true, and we know it is, then what are we afraid of? We have nothing to fear. Amen? If we live, we live for Christ. If we die, we're going to be with Christ. So we're in... The greatest spot that one could ever imagine. Adrian Rogers lying on his deathbed, faithful pastor for many, many years. Some of you know the name. Looks like he's going to die. He's laying there in the hospital. His daughter comes to him, dad, you know, praying, tears, words. He says, honey, I'm in the ultimate win-win situation. If the Lord heals me, I'll continue on in the ministry. And if he takes me home, I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I'm in the ultimate win-win situation. That's you as a believer. That's me. Amen? Amen. This is the Bible's truth. This is why it's so beautiful to know the Lord. This is why you can be at peace with the greatest questions of life and death. And this is why we need to get the gospel out there because people don't understand this. And so Satan, you know, holds the power of death and fear over so many people's lives. And it doesn't mean that Christians are not afraid. Of course, we, this is all we've known. We're not, we're not going to sit here and try to, you know, be more powerful than we actually are. But truth does set us free. Amen. And truth can set you free from fears and you know, for so many people, they, they don't live the way that they should because they're locked up by fear. Paul says in 22, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. In other words, Paul's saying, if I had the choice, I, didn't, I don't know which way I would go. I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart 
and be with Christ for that's very much better. That's my desire. If you were to ask me, where do I want to be? I want to be wherever he is. But he says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more what? It's more necessary for your sake. I'm hard pressed between the two. Paul says in Romans 9, I have a prayer wish for my brethren according to the flesh. I wish that I would be a curse from Christ, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren. This is Romans 9, about verses 1 through 3. He says, I'm speaking to this by the Holy Spirit. I'm not lying. I wish that I could be a curse from Christ, that my brethren would come to know him. In the next chapter of Romans, he says they have a zeal for God, but they don't have knowledge. For Paul, death would be the greater personal gain hands down. But for the church, they still needed Paul's apostolic ministry. And so here's how one writer puts it. The needs of the church were met by a love which for the present was willing to postpone heavenly glories for the good of the church. And that's why when we started the Philippian study, I told you that the theme verses are, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that is exactly what Paul is showing us. He's not looking out for just his own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Amen. He's living what he was about to write in the next chapter. And so this is the beauty of Paul's ministry. He says, look, if, if I had a choice, if I could choose it, I would rather see Jesus face to face. I have all the mourning and the pain and the tears behind me. But I think that he's going to keep me around at least for a while longer so I can continue to pour into you and glorify him with fruit. What do you do to a guy like that? <laughs> what can you do to a guy like that? He's not going to stop. Because he knows what his life is all about. And that's why I asked you the question to fill in the blank. The blank for to me to live is. If you can write Christ in there, everything else will take care of itself. This is what uh, Hughes says about it. What a needed message for the church. As it stands amidst a me-first culture that makes self-fulfillment into an entitlement. In fact, I would tell you that self-fulfillment is this culture's God. So the words of Paul are so diametrically opposed to a me-first, idolatrous generation. All of the goods that are sold out there are all about you put you first, who you are. It's all about your identity. It's all about you. And you push, push, push until people just accept it or get it or whatever. That's diametrically opposed to the biblical worldview, which says for me to live is Christ. I live for others. And ultimately, it's about his glory. Final two verses. And convinced of this, that is that he would stay, he would live longer for the sake of the Philippians and other churches. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is what I want to see happen. I want you to progress, verse 25, and to have overflowing joy, final verse, so that your proud confidence in me 
may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. When I come to you again, I want you to rejoice in what God's done in my life, but I want it to be ultimately about the glory of God. This is Hughes one more time. He says, Paul had no divine word about his staying alive, but given his apostolic calling and the need for his ministry to the Philippians, he felt sure that he had more life ahead of him and they would glory not in him, but in Christ Jesus. Either way, Paul could say, I will see you again. And when we see each other, we will rejoice. Final story. Uh, I was reading a, a commentary by R. Kent Hughes this week, and he wrote a, a little section about an elder in their church. And uh, he was a doctor. I think his name was Dr. Chong. And uh, he had been a longtime uh, physician in the, in the area. He had been an elder in the church, a very faithful man of God. And uh, he was on his deathbed, and uh, he was kind of going in and out of consciousness. And he came back for a moment, and his family was all around him, but he couldn't speak. So he asked for a pen to write a message to his family, literally in his dying moments. And he wrote these immortal words. For, and he wrote it very slowly. For, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he wrote, nothing has changed. And he ended up dying after that. You see, you can make this your own tonight, brethren. That's the point. The, these immortal words are more than an adage. They are our life verses. And so when we come, should the Lord tarry, and we come to that moment, and we will, if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, we can say, to me, to live is Christ. And if he takes me home, it's going to be the ultimate gain. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this wonderful section in Philippians. Thank you for your people. What a beautiful family of God you have gathered here. Uh, it's good to be together in a midweek study and to consider some of the most profound verses in, in our Bible and to be able to anchor them uh, in our hope, Lord, to us to live as Christ and to die as gain. But there's something in between there, Lord, and, and it's come out in the study, and that is Paul's love for the church. His love for the church certainly was inspired by your love for your bride. And Jesus, you said that people would know that we belong to you by our love, one for another. And that's what we see here. We see a man so filled with love for God's people that he would forestall the glories of heaven and seeing Christ and say, Lord, when you get me out of this prison, I will go back and minister to these people in this city that you led me to, to start a church. Uh, amazing love, Lord. That, that's what you've done in our hearts. That's how you've changed our priorities. That's how you've taught us what it really means to live and to be able to, to have the biggest questions of this life answered and the life to come. So, Lord, would you encourage your people tonight uh, whatever they're going through personally, whatever challenges, I pray for fresh provision from heaven. I pray for a chorus 
of beauty, of power to come down and to fill them by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that a fresh vision for their own personal life would emerge. I pray that fruit would abound to your glory. And I pray that you would help us as we have breath in our lungs to continue to minister and use our gifts for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, and for the encouragement of your people. Now tonight, as you just take a little Selah moment, just keep your head and heart bowed. Have you met Jesus? Can you say, for me to live is Christ? I hope you can. I, I know most of you say that, but if you're not sure you've answered that question, that's, that's really what you got to start with. For me, to me, to live is Christ. And right there, he will meet you. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry that I've tried to live without you. I'm sorry that I've you know, put me, myself, and I before you and the ways of the world and all of those things. Lord, forgive me. I, I repent of my sin, and I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Be my life. Be my God. Be my King. If you're a prodigal and you've been wandering from the Lord and maybe you've just been kind of missing the mark and you would say, man, I, I, if I filled in that blank, I'd have 10 things before God. Well, it's always, there's always the, the opportunity to get things back in order. And you can do business with the Lord on that, along those lines. And, and for all of you who are, are beloved saints in Christ Jesus, may you be steadfast immovable, always abounding in, in the work of the Lord, knowing that not one thing that you do for him is ever in vain. May your life be a theater for his glory, a chorus for the songs of heaven. And may he sustain you with a willing spirit. May he bless you to overflowing. May his beautiful face shine upon you. And may he give you peace and strength for the days ahead as you seek to occupy until he comes.